This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Lake Hartwell Country, a largely undiscovered region in the mountains of South Carolina that's one of the best adventure playgrounds anywhere. Tucked into the northwest corner of the state, Lake Hartwell Country offers a unique getaway in an uncrowded section of the Appalachian Mountains. Here it rains more than 75 inches a year, creating a verdant rainforest and, as you might expect, a lot of waterfalls. In fact, there are more than a hundred of them. Many can be reached with a short hike. To get to others, you might spend hours walking empty trails or even paddling a kayak. Lake Hartwell Country is truly a land of water. There are three major lakes, including its namesake, Lake Hartwell, which offers 962 miles of shoreline. That's more than the coast of California. It's known for superb fishing and regularly hosts nationally renowned bass fishing tournaments. Then there's the Chattooga River, a federally designated wild and scenic river that Outside Magazine regularly calls out as one of our favorite paddling destinations. It's one of the longest free-flowing rivers in the southeast, and it provides visitors spectacular scenery as it plummets through steep gorges. There are also sandy beaches and quiet stretches for relaxing. Visit LakeHartwellCountry.com now to start planning your adventure to the undiscovered South Carolina mountains. From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast. Now here is a fun exercise to try with some of your friends. Call them up and ask them why they hate the internet, just to see what they say. The internet has ruined my life. I waste a lot of time on the internet, especially in the morning before I get out of bed. You know that feeling that you get when you're moving from one room in your home to another, except halfway there, you realize you've completely forgotten why you got up to go to the other room? It's like a bad travel guide to the universe. You know, you go looking for a bread recipe and you end up reading about serial killers. Hmm. Okay. But now, ask them a much stranger and more interesting question. What would they do if the internet suddenly died? Probably I would spend the first few months just staring off into the distance. And then I would learn to temper chocolate. Go back to taking random walks. Just leaving the house, having no idea where I'm going to end up, and just walking. I would read more books. I could become a decent human being again. I could, like, go out and be Aaron Brockovich and save cats in person rather than through clicks and likes. I could just get back to actually doing what's important. Questioning our relationship to technology is something we've done a lot of over the years at Outside Magazine and on this podcast. More specifically, we have investigated the benefits we get when we disconnect from our various devices and instead seek out connections with the natural world and with each other. If you're listening to this show, that probably resonates with you. It definitely resonates with the people you just heard. They are friends of the journalist Chris Collin. He called them up to help us work through some of the big ideas in his curious new book. It's called Off, The Day the Internet Died, A Bedtime Fantasy. Here's how Chris explains it. So Off is a funny picture book for adults and adult-like children. 
It's a parable about the death of the internet and what happens to us when that occurs. If you were to look at it at first glance, it looks like a sort of like a children's picture book with really interesting, uh, beautiful, slightly demented artwork. It's, I don't even know, maybe 30-something pages. It's a very slim book. <laughs> okay, you're a serious journalist. You know, you, you've done big reported feature stories for a bunch of publications, including Outside and the New York Times Magazine and Wired. So how do you go from that to writing what is very much a, a kind of silly book here? I think we're all a little defensive at this point in our relationship with the internet. No one wants to be scolded anymore about how we spend too much time online. No one wants to be told yet again that we need to break up with our screens or whatever. There was something else that was a little more interesting to me and something that I don't think gets talked about quite enough. What gets neglected is this other side of ourselves. I came to think of it as our offline selves. That's just sort of slowly vanishing right under our noses because of all the time we spend online. So we have these offline selves in us, basically. We have these versions of, our, of ourselves, of our lives that are not getting lived. And I think there's something valuable in being reminded that they exist, in getting back in touch with the version of me that likes to get off the train in a new city and not take out my phone and, and know where I'm going. The version of me that goes for a hike and cannot be reached by phone or by text. Simply saying those things out loud, the things that we would like to be doing, but we're not doing because of the internet, I think there's real power in that. Chris is certainly a big believer in the power of the spoken word. He's worked with producers to turn some of his best magazine work into brilliantly funny and moving live stage performances. And so, while he is not an expert in how human brains or lives change when we spend the majority of our waking hours online, he does bring a unique kind of ambitious creativity to the topic. He wrote off his mock children's bedtime book about the internet in a kind of biblical verse. And then he arranged for a very special reading of it. On the day the screens went dark, all of creation was quiet, but also loud. Squirrels screecheth, and jays tittereth, and dry leaves scrapeth across the street. A thought layeth into me. Why had I not heard such sounds before? I gavest to tweet of them, then remembered. Ha! No can do, LOL. That was not the voice of God. Ah. It was also not the voice of Morgan Freeman playing the voice of God. I wanted to hire Morgan Freeman, but turns out I'm not friends with Morgan Freeman, and he's also really expensive <laughs> right. uh, if you are looking to hire him to voice your adult picture book. Right. So instead, I went online and I found an impersonator. Uh, turns out the internet is great for finding Morgan Freeman impersonators very easily and cheaply. <laughs> right, right, because you never know when that's something you might need. So thank God for the internet. <laughs> but but here's the thing. Okay, your fake Morgan Freeman read a passage that I, I feel underscores something that at least here at Outside Magazine we care a lot about, which is that the internet prevents us from being connected to the natural world a lot of the time. So is that what happened to you? I mean, does did this come from any kind of your own personal experience? 
Yeah. I mean, I think we're all familiar with the basic way that the internet comes between us and nature. You know, we're just too busy doing things on the internet to to remember to go out and hike on Saturday morning. But there are other ways too that I was I was seeing it warp my relationship with the outdoors. I would be going for an adventure in some new place and I would get there and I'd realize I knew exactly what it looked like even though I had never been before. And that's sort of depressing. Mm-hmm. And then there's this other phenomenon that happens and this is embarrassing to talk about, but this is sort of how the book sort of popped into my head initially. I was up in Point Reyes in Northern California. I had walked uh, out onto this little bluff overlooking this gorgeous estuary. I was alone. I had no work to do. It was like your quintessential lovely moment with nature. And I sit down on this rock. I remember sitting there for a minute, being struck by how beautiful it was for two minutes, being struck by how sublime it was. And then the third minute comes around and I feel that old magnetic pull of my hand to my right jeans pocket. And this is the embarrassing part. I, at some level, was a little bored by nature. And that's when I realized I had a, I had a real problem. It's not just that I don't get out into nature anymore. It's that I'd sort of begun to lose the skill of enjoying it. It was no longer enough just to sit and look at this beautiful place. I needed to be entertained at a, at a higher level. And so... I decided to report this out a little bit, and I started calling up folks I knew who were thoughtful about life and thoughtful about their relationship to the internet. And I just asked them, how would your life change if the internet went away? And the answers I got were this funny mix of of amusing and poignant, sometimes heartbreaking. I asked every person to, you know, just keep your answer to like 10 seconds, if you don't mind, or, or a few seconds. Everyone went way over that. I think that once you're sort of reminded that you have this this sort of void in your life because of the internet, just starting to talk about it really sort of opens the floodgates. I asked the journalist Malika Rao what she would do if the internet died. She talked about returning to a simpler existence. If the internet suddenly went away, I think I would run outside and just push my hands in the dirt just as a sort of symbolic recognition that my relationship with the planet was going to foundationally change and that I would become a more sensory, tactile, physical being would be a a moment of, of joy and triumph. Wow. Okay. So that's something I really understand at the end of a day of work, like things like weeding just become this incredible like solve to, to my psyche at that point yeah I, I think we we forget about that we every time we get back in touch with it we remember but we forget it's because we've blocked out so much of the natural world and and we blocked out everything else too our children our spouses our friends uh you know just about anything that exists outside of our screens we have a way of keeping that stuff at a distance while we're busy you know texting someone you know who's not anywhere near us. Right, right. The the natural world, I think we forget to tune into it and we forget the special thing that it does to us. And then we start to sort of lose our connection to it. We will lose that connection, but we're all still hungry for it, right? Yeah. One of the things I heard from folks when I talked to them is that there is this real hunger for any kind of experience where you're just off the grid, being unreachable, being untethered, being sort of unbothered by that frantic pace that the internet gives rise to. I talked to the author, Natalie Bazil, and she 
told me a very memorable fantasy of what she would do if the internet died. I would pack up my camera and my books, all the books that I have wanted to read and all the books that I love, and I would pack everything in a little suitcase with a one-way ticket to Zanzibar. When I got there, I'd rent a little cottage and I would spend my days reading and taking photographs that I would develop in a little dark room behind my bungalow. And it would be lovely. Yeah, that that does sound lovely. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, it's tough to beat Zanzibar, uh, I suppose, for, for an escape. But, but the, the strange thing, even those escapes can be hard. We hunger for them. But it's like this little dirty truth that we all hate to confess was that when we get out there, we often tend to miss the Internet. It is totally a dirty truth. Yeah, I think, I think when you first unplug, it's disorienting. You aren't immediately bathed in calm. The strange thing is when we do manage to get into real nature, we still have the impulse to relate to it in Internet terms. We want to you know, not just look at the mountain. We want to take a picture of it. We want to share it. We want to make sure that our picture gets liked and hearted. I think part of unplugging is remembering how to engage in a totally different way. I also think that that is a phenomenon that was massively exacerbated by the pandemic. Right. I think before COVID, we were only flirting with the Internet. And suddenly we were using the Internet all day. And then we use it at night to soothe ourselves after using it all day by watching our favorite shows or whatever. It was a necessity, of course. I can't imagine trying to do my job or raise my kids this past year without it, but the screen time is insane. And a lot of these new habits that we developed, you know, from Zoom meetings to, you know, doing virtual events to just watching the hell out of our favorite series, I think now we're reaching a moment where we have to make a decision. And how, how do we want to relate to the internet going forward? How are we going to get back in touch with the offline world and with our offline selves? We'll be right back. At the top of the episode, we talked about Lake Hartwell Country, a largely undiscovered region in the mountains of South Carolina that's one of the best adventure playgrounds anywhere. This is a place blessed with unique geography, unlike most spots along the Appalachian chain, which have gently sloping mountains. Here, the elevation plunges more than 2,000 feet in less than half a mile. The result is the Blue Ridge Escarpment, a dramatic feature that the Cherokee tribes in the area gave a special name. No, That's the Blue Wall, as translated by Garfield Long Jr., a tribal linguist with the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. The Blue Wall can be seen from all corners of Lake Hartwell country. But get up close and you'll find an exceptional ecosystem known as the Jocassee Gorges. This is one of the most remote areas on the East Coast, with more than 40,000 acres of protected wilderness, two state parks, and a vast network of hiking trails. Here you can find black bear, bald eagles, peregrine falcons, and dozens of rare plants. The water cascading down these slopes makes its way to Lake Jocassee, one of the top scuba diving destinations in the southeast, thanks to its crystal clear waters. Start planning your adventure 
to Lake Hartwell Country and the undiscovered South Carolina mountains at lakehartwellcountry.com. One of the stronger points that comes through in Chris Collins' awesomely strange and silly picture book, Off the Day the Internet Died, is that we have become so accustomed to gorging on information all the time that actually turning off that noise can make us deeply uncomfortable. Here's a passage that gets right at that. On the day the screens went dark, 33,298 New Yorkers absorbed no hourly political updates, and 21,983 Parisians knew not how long their commutes would take, and 7,332 Londoners listened to an unfamiliar podcast consisting of their thoughts. Holy crap, let me perish, all sensed unto themselves, though some also felt a strange calm. What sweet new calming app hath installed, they wondered, but there was none. I take from the way that passage reads, you actually think that we need to obviously work on turning off that noise at least some of the time, and that that would probably make us happier? I think that we have this weird addiction, not just to the internet itself, but to constant information. We want to know uh, what's happening in the news. We want to know how bad the traffic's going to be up ahead. We want to know how to get to a certain place without having to figure it out for ourselves. We want to have voices in our ears and in our heads constantly. I think silence is uncomfortable and I, you know, I would defer to the psychologists out there to explain why, but I assume that we've sort of lost a sort of inner dialogue that we used to be better at having. And once you don't have that, you need to to have constant information coming at you. But is there any sense that any of that, some of that information might actually make us a little happier, that we, that we like knowing what's going on and, and we like the ability to not be terribly lost. (laughs) Yeah, that's what's complicated about it. Life would suck in a lot of ways if we didn't have that information. I like being able to avoid a traffic jam and get to where I'm going sooner. I like being able to hear a really amazing podcast or book on tape or being able to find some obscure band that I wouldn't be able to find in a record store. It's all wonderful. I don't think that we should be moving in the direction of trying to dislike that stuff. What I want to do is just be aware of what it's replacing and what it's doing to us. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to disentangle the good parts of the internet and the bad parts, the healthy parts and the unhealthy parts. But I think that if you can just sort of take your own pulse, you can get a sense of how manic your baseline existence has become. I think one sign that we have a manic relationship with the internet is that we often go to the internet, we turn to it when we don't even know why. Uh, I talked to a lawyer in Portland, Oregon named Jose Klein, who confessed to me that when he first wakes up in the morning, he'll often start opening apps on his phone that he doesn't even care about, much less need to use at that moment. So I will just click on Zillow. My fingers will do it before I even know. And then it's like my brain catches up and realizes that I have no interest in any content that Zillow might have. And even stranger and maybe more disturbing is that he also does these deep dives into pro sports analysis 
with sports he doesn't even actually watch. I know, for example, that Kyle Shanahan, coach of the San Francisco 49ers, employs a zone scheme running game. I don't know really what a zone scheme running game is, but I know that that happens. I know that Josh Richardson has been disappointing as a wing defender on the Dallas Mavericks, even though I don't think I have ever seen Josh Richardson play basketball. That one really hits home for me because I've gone over the deep end reading stories about NBA basketball, sort of like Jose. I'm learning a lot of things I I don't really care about or need to know about. But once you start falling into that, it's really hard to pull yourself out of it. Yeah, exactly. You know, I I reached out to a writer named Onesha Roy Chowdhury, who lives in New York, and she's written a lot about politics and culture. She made the point that 20 years of internet use has amounted to a kind of surrender of her brain, her, her thoughts and her sense of purpose. You played that clip at the start of the episode about the internet giving her that feeling you get when you're walking from one room in your house to another and forgetting why. Here's a little more of what she had to say about that. Like you really want to try to remember what it was that you were thinking you needed to do and it becomes inflated. Like maybe it was just like to empty the trash or something, but it takes on this outsized importance because you forgot, you forgot it. And I, and, and I feel like ever since I started regularly using the internet, which I don't know, it's like 20 plus years now, like that I feel like I've just been wandering from one room to another, completely incapable of remembering what I initially was setting out to do. I totally know that feeling. I mean, if I told you about the 1980s gossip I was reading today on the internet before we spoke, Mike, you would <laughs> blanch. That's, that's worse than NBA basketball. <laughs> So, okay, our manic relationship with the internet causes us to waste a scary percentage of our waking hours ingesting meaningless information. And our always-on selves have forgotten how to exist in the natural world. We all know this. But there's another issue that Chris raises in Off that's not something I thought I needed to be worried about. On the day the screens went dark, I cried to our children. Let us bake a pie, though we know not which recipe is rated highest. We toiled and toiled, then beheld what we'd wrought. It would receive neither fave nor heart, nor Aunt Kim's supplemental conspiracy links. But we ate of it with vigor. Honestly, this one confuses me. Are you making the point that online pie recipes are one of the worst aspects of the internet? Okay. Online pie recipes didn't almost destroy the fabric of our democracy. But I would argue that, yeah, they're one of the most, I would say, most depressing aspects of the Internet in a way. Mm. And I say this as someone who, who uses a lot of online recipes. There's something about that phenomenon, and I'm not picking on pie recipes here, but the larger phenomenon of going to the Internet and finding out whether something is good or bad before you do it. And that sort of breaks my heart because I feel like one of the most strange and wonderful experiences you have as a human is doing some weird new thing and having it blow up in your face. You know, I can't remember the last time I watched a really crappy B-movie because I don't need to. Now I know because of 
Rotten Tomatoes, whether a movie is going to be really bad or not. And if it's bad, I just don't stream it. And I think that there are good reasons for that. And I think there are also really sad things about that. And so the internet as this sort of guardrail to our existence, I think that's a little depressing. This one I still have a harder time with because I'd rather not eat crappy pie and watch bad movies. I'd rather eat good pie and watch great movies because life is short. Mm -hmm. So help me understand the sad part of avoiding crappy things. When I think about things I've done in my life, I'm not sure I could really say that the good things, the quote unquote good things, are necessarily better in a lot of cases than the bad things. Right. You know, certainly as a as a traveler, as someone who likes to have adventures, you know that the the ones that that go sideways are often the most memorable and they're often the ones where you learn something about yourself or a loved one or the planet. You know, I talked to the wonderful writer Gary Camilla and he Describe for me the way the internet experiences the world for you so that you don't really know whose voice you're listening to in the end. You don't know what to make of an experience that you have because you're either hearing something that you read in your head or you're hearing your own thoughts. You're not sure which is which anymore. The time that you were in, say, the Roman Colosseum and were desperate to have a meaningful historical encounter with ancient Rome but you are armed with a guidebook which has become your Bible and which tells you where to go and what to do and what to think and what to feel. And so when you're in the Roman Colosseum, and I distinctly remember this happening to me, I couldn't get out of the guidebook. I couldn't leave that web of interpretation and well-meaning advice. And that day in the Roman Colosseum was extremely disappointing and sterile, empty, and essentially a footnote to the guidebook. Well, the internet functions all too often like a bad travel guide to the universe. It's always there, and whether it's good or not, or bad, it's bad simply because it is a travel guide, and you shouldn't always have a travel guide when you're moving through the universe. There was one more passage from off that I wanted to talk about. It was the one that hit me the hardest because it was about kids. I'm a dad with three young boys. And like so many other parents, I have a deep anxiety about helping my kids develop healthy digital habits. In the year the screens went dark, our children lay upon the grass and rode upon horses and trembled at rainbows. For feeling now suffused their hearts where once distraction dwelleth. Let us play Minecraft for nine freaking hours, they would say, and it would come to pass. For Minecraft was a game involving sticks and leaves. Why are parents so obsessed with pulling their kids away from screens? Have we gone too far on that? Yeah, I mean, as you know, Parents love to play out their anxieties through their children. Uh, it's one of our favorite things to do. This is this is something that all parents struggle with, of course. Not just how much uh, screen time to give your kids, but am I even right to be worried about it in the first place? My kids are addicted to Minecraft, um, and they're constantly telling me that I need to get over my weird hang-ups about all their screen time and just see that Minecraft is a, a really interesting, fun game. 
I think to them, all my sort of rambling on about the internet and screens and stuff, it's just, it's just like a weird old man and his weird adult tick, the way that adults like to put vegetables in lasagna or whatever. They just don't understand it, but they've gotten used to it. (laughs) Well, the crazy thing about that is my kids who have had a relatively light screen existence have just been allowed to play Minecraft for the first time over the last week. It is something that they absolutely love. And I was having this discussion with my 11-year-old and he was saying, no, dad, it's it's such a great game. It's like the real world. And I stopped and I looked at him and I was like, well, if you like it so much because it's like the real world, what about going out into the real world instead? When he was like, no, no, but but it's different. It's fun. It's more of an adventure. And so that's the heart of it. And the challenge is the real world is a little slow. Yeah, it's slow, has mosquitoes. Real world's a pain in the butt sometimes. Right. It's not at all curated. So how do you navigate this with your own family? Do you well, do- my kids are, are young enough that I can wield soft power and still control their screen time somewhat. But yeah, you know, when I start to waver, I do have this conviction that there's another register that we all connect with sometimes. Anyone listening to this who has floated in a river on a summer day or had a wonderful walk somewhere beautiful with a loved one or sat somewhere magical and sort of connected with that deeper part of themselves, you know that that register exists. And as terrific and miraculous as the internet often is, I really don't think there is a website that has replicated that yet. And I want my kids to have that weird, almost trippy experience of being in tune with nature, the universe, call it what you like, at that deeper, deeper level. And you have to cycle down about four cycles to get there. Mm -hmm. And I just know you can't do that when the internet's humming in your background. And my hope is that a funny book that mostly just makes you laugh, it's very gentle um, nudge is toward just sort of remembering these other parts of ourselves that don't really see the light of day when we spend so much time on our screens. And not in a guilty way. I really don't think anyone needs to feel guilty about their internet habits. But yeah, if you can just sort of reacquaint yourself with these little corners of, uh, of your personality that like doing other things that, that sometimes get short shrift in, in this uh, era, I think that's that's worthwhile. Has it worked for you? Has it cultivated anything new in your habits? You know, I I would say I use the internet almost as much as ever. It has not really made a dent in my internet usage. What it has done is awoken me to these other parts of myself that had sort of gone dormant. This past Saturday, I was up in, in Guerneville in Northern California. I jumped in a river with some friends and we swam around and we were out away from the internet for hours and not only did I not check Twitter or whatever but I also tried not to take photos and tried to just experience that day and those moments on their own terms. I got my second vaccine shot two days ago and I resisted the urge to take a picture of my band-aid and share it. I tried to experience those feelings sort of privately and with the people who were around me. As I was leaving the vaccination center, there was a part of me that wanted to take a picture of it and sort of have that 
visual digital evidence that I would or wouldn't share. I didn't. I just looked at it with my own old-fashioned eyeballs and thought about it with my own old-fashioned thoughts. And that was refreshing. Chris Collins' new book is off, The Day the Internet Died. It's available anywhere books are sold. You can learn more about it and also listen to additional offline fantasies from Chris's many interesting friends at timetogetoff.com. This episode was produced by me, Michael Roberts, though Chris Collins certainly helped. Music is by Robbie Carver. Morgan Freeman impression by C. Fulton 90. Thanks to Malika Rao, Natalie Brazil, Jose Klein, Onesha Roy Chowdhury, Gary Camilla, Faith Adiele, and Nigel Poor for sharing their thoughts on the internet and what they would do if it died. This episode was brought to you by Lake Hartwell Country, a largely undiscovered region in the mountains of South Carolina that's one of the best adventure playgrounds anywhere. Visit lakehartwellcountry.com to start planning your trip now.